0: If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: hello again and welcome back once more to signals to danger this is of course episode 26 now i know i did say that we'd have another special next up but i did decide to mix things up a little bit from that point because partly well there was a bit of an appetite for a proper episode from some and that's fine because i love making them and it's what the podcast is so i think there's a, a few of you out there who might like listening to those normal episodes there will still be specials going forward, there's a mostly written script for the next one saved on the laptop, so I do fully intend on using it and making it, but for now, let's just get back into an actual real episode. You might have noticed that if you follow Signals on YouTube, that there was a London YouTube video under the sub, well, brand, I guess, of Signals Explores. This means that as well as Signals to Danger, the podcast, you can also find Signals Explores and Signals Explains on YouTube, and um well, I'm keen to look at doing more of both in the coming months. Certainly, though, not at the expense of the podcast. That is what I believe professionals call the core product. And I, I do want to make sure that I keep focusing on getting these out for you guys. As I do every episode, I'm going to open up by thanking you all for your continued support and remind you that if you do want to join some sort of conversations online and things like that, you can find the podcast at, at Signals to Danger or me at at Daniel Fox Rail on Twitter And the podcast is also on Facebook and Instagram as well. Very, very modern I am. I'll also drop you a little reminder about the website, SignalsForDanger.com, and on there there's show notes, transcripts, the shop and more, although I think it probably needs a little bit of housekeeping, which is on my to-do list for tomorrow. While you're on there as well, there is a page on how you can support the podcast if you do want to, and there's a link on there for Patreon. And I'd love to take the opportunity to thank Harry and Hanif for their support on that platform, and also Roger for your generous donation as well. Now, with that somewhat slightly longer than normal intro out of the way, it's time for our episode to begin. An arrow-straight section of railway line, normally something without interest or consequence, but still the plane circled above. The simple newsreel camera trained on the scene below. Men swarming like ants, smashed wood, bent steel, And bruised bodies. The year is 1951 and the place, Weedon. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. This is Signal to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. You'll know me by now, I am Dan, and I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today, I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We start every episode by briefly revisiting the events which were taking place at the time, and this episode is no different except... Well, we already visited back in episode 20, I believe, so let's have another look at 1951. We know from the episode we already talked about that 1951 gave us Dennis the Menace, National Parks in the UK, and the Zebra Crossing. We saw Churchill begin his second term in office, and many other things took place which I'm sure will come as no surprise to you but the reason that we've already discussed it is due to the fact that we've already had an episode that was set in 1951. On the 16th of March, 1951, the 1004 Doncaster to London Kings Cross Express, hauled by Cocker the North, left the station. Shortly afterwards, the train was negotiating a tight crossover when the third coach derailed. The leading end of that coach followed the front of the train and went to the right of a pier supporting a bridge, but the rear of the coach propelled by the weight of the following train, went to the left, wrapping that coach around the pier, killing 14 passengers and seriously injuring 12 others. And if you want to hear that story in full, it's episode 20. The relatively brand new British Railways no doubt hoped that this would be the last accident to enter the record books, at least for some time, but unfortunately this hope would be dashed later in the year, in the Northamptonshire countryside on the 21st of September. The disaster at Doncaster took place on a route which is by now all too familiar to us, the East Coast Main Line. But you'll be pleased to hear that this time out we're headed somewhere completely, entirely and utterly different. Well, actually somewhere that we're already too familiar with. The West Coast Main Line. We've visited several times now, from the remote and rugged Cumbrian countryside of Greyrig, to the hustle and bustle of the suburban Harrow and Wealdstone on the outskirts of the capital. This time round we've landed somewhere a little different on the route. The village of Whedon in idyllic, rural Northamptonshire. Around 70 miles north of London's Euston platforms, which is probably about 40 minutes at today's rate, well, this is where you could find the small countryside station of Weedon. The station served the small village and parish of Weedon Beck. Just over, well, just under, sorry, 3,000 people currently call Weedon home, so it's not by any means a major metropolis all of its own. It does, however, have its own claims to history as the home of a Napoleonic War era military ordnance depot which actually does sound pretty fascinating to read about it with um, access by canals and garrison towers. and Just have a little read-up, it's quite, it's quite interesting. But as well as a call on the main line, Whedon Station also served as the starting point of the Whedon to Leamington Spa branch. The line closed in 1958, and realistically this was the death knell for the station itself, with the building being demolished shortly after. One of my favourite rabbit holes to fall down while researching these episodes is when you try and find the course that old lines used to take. And actually, the Weedon to Leamington Spa branch is a fantastic example of this. If you go to the location where Wind Station used to be and just travel slightly north of the line with little to no effort, you can trace the entire route with its sort of tree lined it's really obvious and you can follow it all the way through to Royal Leamington Spa with little effort. And it's fascinating to see what used to be there, but I am getting myself digressed again, as I so often do the current fast lines of the WCML still pass by the site of the station, but the trains have not called there for many years. But in any case, in 1951, the station was very much still in situ, but it's a bit of a moot point because actually for this episode, What we need to focus on is an area just south of the station itself, but we'll get to that shortly. spoken in the past about the uh, somewhat less than linear arrangement of the WCML when compared to its eastern cousin, and it is on one of those side routes which we start our journey today. At 20 past 8 in the morning on the 21st September, a passenger express train departed from the platforms of Liverpool's Lime Street Terminus. Well actually it left at 23 minutes past because it was three minutes late. There was an experienced driver, Mr Tomlin, at the control's and his fireman was his regular running mate, A.S. Wallace. Both men were stationed out of Camden Shed down in the capital, and had been on what we call a lodge turn, a turn of duty which required a night away from home at another location. They woke early in the morning, well rested, and made their way down to Liverpool's Edge Hill Depot. There they found their locomotive, number 46207. The loco had been oiled and generally prepared for them by another pair of men. But Tomlin diligently performed some checks of his own, and after calling and watering the engine, he left the shed at 7.35 to work the 8.20 train. Now, number 46207 was known, as many locals were at this time, by a different and thoroughly more catchy name, Princess Arthur of Connaught. One of the London Midland and Scottish Railway's Princess Royal class, these were an upgraded version of the Great Western's King class, with a larger firebox they were created to haul the West Coast equivalent of the flying Scotsman, the Royal Scot. Interestingly, the creation of this particular loco was actually featured in a groundbreaking 1930s documentary, which was entitled Number 6207, A Study in Steel. That documentary followed the loco's creation from molten steel and moulds and sand and dyes and cutting shops till the finished product. And as part of the research of this episode, I I lost myself in that for 20 minutes, which I'm sure you're not surprised at at all. Long after its construction, Princess Arthur continued to be maintained and looked after by the men of Edge Hill Shed, undergoing regular maintenance and repair, and replacements of parts as they wore down or broke. It was this diligent team which handed the loco over to Tomlin on the 21st, and by this time, number 46207 had earned her keep on the railway, having run around 90 sorry 980,000 miles since it was entered into service in the middle of the 30s when tomlin opened her regulator on the morning of the 21st he eased that train out of liverpool starting on her, on her on her last journey before disaster behind the 160-ton locomotive and tender were 15 vehicles four first class carriages nine third class a kitchen car and a dining car Each of these vehicles weighed around the 30-tonne mark, making the load at the buffers around 460 tonnes, and for a total train length of 329 yards. This was a classic West Coast Express. The journey south was uneventful. Princess Arthur of Connaught was steaming well, not even remotely struggling with the load of the carriages behind. 35 miles after the platforms at Lime Street, The O eight twenty called at Crew and departed ten minutes later at ten twenty eight. The further delay had been caused by signals slowing the express, delays caused by other services and well the generally busy nature of the West Coast Main Line. And those delays didn't end after Crew and between there and Rugby, a further six minutes of delay were added to the tally of the journey. Around ten minutes after speeding through the platforms at rugby, non stop, the express was now on the approach. Whedon. Whedon station is located in the midst of a series of curves known as the Whedon curves and to place this for you if you've ever traveled on the west coast main line southbound you'll Probably you've realised that there is a point just at the Watford Gap services that the West Coast Main Line swoops in and runs directly next to the M1, metres away from motorway traffic, and if you're anything like me, you love the feeling of overtaking cars and lorries and buses and coaches as you whiz past them. But after that, the line then pulls away to the right again and enters a small sweeping series of lazy curves left, then right, then a tighter left, and this brings us to the point that Whedon station used to stand. The speed is a little bit faster nowadays, with the addition of tilting trains and far more optimally aligned track, but in 1951, 65 miles an hour was expected, and according to both Tomlin, Wallace and the station master at Whedon, that's around about what was achieved on the day. Immediately following Whedon, the trains take a small right-hand curve and then into a left hand bend alongside the Grand Union Canal. But after that bend, the canal peels off to the left to avoid Store Hill directly ahead. Tomlin, Davis, and the Princess of Connaught proceeded directly ahead, however, onto the arrow straight length of track, which would last for the next couple of miles. While the canal avoided Store Hill, the railway used the 450 metre Store Hill Tunnel, a black portal in the hillside ahead. To continue telling the story of Whedon, we need to briefly cut back in and explain something about the design of Princess Arthur and actually most mainline express steam locomotives. Because of the length of the boiler on the Princess Royal class, the wheels of the vehicle could not all be mounted onto one rigid frame. Otherwise, the Loco would never be able to negotiate any corners on the winding lines of the UK and in the same way, the weight of the loco couldn't just be balanced and supported on the main driving wheels in the middle. The Princess Royals were four-six-two locos, six driving wheels in the middle, two unpowered wheels underneath the cab, and four leading wheels, unpowered, on a small bogey at the front end of the, lo- the loco. The bogey helped to guide locos around the corners of the line, to support the weight of the front end of the boiler, and just provide stability. So the importance of this bogey for high-speed travel was not lost on the industry, and by the time we reached this point, all Express Locos possessed the feature. And importantly, the leading bogey does not just have simple rotational motion around a single vertical pivot, as you might initially think. It actually has to be free to slip sideways to a small extent to allow curves to be followed correctly as the leading end of these very long boilers you're out to the left and right of the curves, just by virtue of the fact that they are metal, rigid, and many, many metres in length. This is a simple enough concept, and it's easy to understand the need for it, but in terms of engineering, it's probably not quite as simple to deliver. On the Princess Royal class, this is achieved by the weight of the engine at the front end, being transmitted to the bogey by some heavy cast steel brackets, bolted to the main frames at each side. A hemispherical projection on the underside of each bracket is seated as the bogey moves side to side on an oil lubricated gunmetal alloy pad on the bogey centre casing. The motion is then limited by springs which actually put four to five tonnes of force in terms of springs to bring that bogie back to centre, call it centering force, depending on the amount off centre the bogey is. So that's a lot of for us keeping it in the right place, but it's interesting to understand how that that bogey essentially is free to slide side to side, and figuring that out is probably one of the more impressive things I've ever read about in terms of engineering of these locomotives. Anyway, with that knowledge out of the way, we can slide back into today's tale. Princess Arthur travelled through the tunnel and under a bridge just beyond, But as the train passed under that bridge, number 231, Tomlin called to Wallace. He told him something was wrong with the leading bogey. He had started to notice a shaking as the local left the tunnel. He closed the regulator and applied the brakes of the train. Wallace saw sparks and dust start to fly from the leading end of the train and before either man knew what had happened, they were off the rails. The engine ran down the 12-foot high embankment off to the left of the track. As soon as it reached the bottom, it became embedded in the soft clay at the foot of the embankment. The leading carriage of the train had followed the loco down the embankment, still coupled to the tender, though the second had just been sent off further at the base and actually came to rest on its roof, just outside of the second carriage and a little behind it. The third and fourth carriages, both carrying first class passengers, were reduced into a barely recognisable mass of wreckage as the energy of the train's 60 mile an hour momentum was suddenly and well violently absorbed by carriages colliding with one another. The fifth vehicle seemed to override the wreckage ahead of it and ended up laid atop Princess Arthur on the embankment. The sixth vehicle, the dining car, well, that was thrown over the top of the wreckage as it gathered and came to rest 45 degrees off the angle of the track laid on top of, and significantly damaging portions of both the first and second coaches. Following it was the kitchen car. That was demolished as it was thrust sideways and overturned onto the remains of the third and fourth vehicles. The eighth vehicle, the carriage, ended up diagonally across both tracks, and to its rear, the ninth, went partly down the bank and was leaning over at about 45 degrees, but it and the remaining six vehicles were Well, they were more or less practically in line, with the final two actually still on the rails. In a period of seconds, an express train travelling at motorway speeds had stopped dead. The shock of their sudden deceleration from high speed was mainly absorbed by the destruction of the 3rd, 4th and 7th vehicles. Their bodies, underframes and bogies were now just piled in a central heap of debris, across the tracks and on the left bank of the embankment. To look at the pile of wood, metal and glass, which now constituted the 820 Express, it would it would sadly come as no surprise that lives had been lost on this September morning. Seven passengers and one member of the dining car staff were killed outright in the course of the derailment, and they would later be joined in the toll by a further seven passengers who had succumbed in hospital. Months after the disaster at Doncaster, British Railways had yet another accident to deal with, and the Railway Inspectorate had another 13 lives to account for. Make no mistake, Whedon was truly a disaster, and one on a huge scale, but it actually could have really been so much worse. When the derailment and piling up of carriages had taken place, it was witnessed by the signalman at Hayford Box, just 900 metres further down the line. He reacted incredibly quickly. Despite his horror at the scene in front of him, he threw the signals to danger against a northbound Royal Scott Express before it ploughed headlong into the wreckage. Perhaps this avoided a far worse collision, and it was lucky that the down train was not a few minutes earlier. Help was summoned quickly by both the signaler at Hayford and a pair of Metropolitan Police officers who had witnessed the accident from their car on an adjacent road. Within seven minutes, local doctors were on the scene and worked in first aid alongside two other doctors who had travelled on the train. Passengers from both the derailed train and the down row Scott stopped at Hayward Box. They assisted in the efforts to save their lives, alongside the emergency services which shortly arrived in force. So effective were their efforts that all of the injured were in ambulances on their way to hospital by an hour after the accident. And you know what, a special mention must be given to a 70-year-old retired district nurse, Miss Rayner. When she heard about the accident, she took it upon herself to walk two miles to the site from the village of Weedon, carrying a case of medical supplies to aid the injured. Perhaps the most miraculous tale amongst all of this destruction was that the footplate crew did not die. With them being at the head of the train in a cab left open to the elements, well, what chance would they have had in this accident where the train buried itself in the ground? Well, it turns out some sort of miraculous and amazing one. The driver, who was on the left-hand side of the footplate, had a fortunate escape from serious injury when he was buried in coal from the tender as the engine overturned, and the fireman, he just clung to the right-hand side of the cab and ended up unhurt. It took several weeks for the wreckage to be completely recovered, and in, in a scene I can't imagine being repeated nowadays, there was some time where trains rocketed past the top hole in covered wreckage at the foot of the embankment on both sides until it could be properly cleared over the course of several weekends when the line was closed. Lieutenant Colonel G.R.S. Wilson was the man on the ground for the Railway Inspectorate. His job? To provide an answer to the families of the victims, British Rail and the travelling public. What happened here, and how could it be prevented in the future? And as ever, we need to look for the answer to some key questions, so first and foremost, what mechanism had derailed this train? Secondly, When we know what mechanism that was, we needed to understand why. Why that took place. For the inspectorate, their work had begun. Once more, we find ourselves with a train that has derailed and a need to understand the reasons why. So let's get into it. Let's unpick the reason by looking at it against the reasons which normally derail trains. Firstly, was there excessive curvature in the region where this derailment took place? We've seen time and time again that high speeds and tight curves does not end well. And Morpeth is my go-to example because you can pick any of them multiple times That trains have ended up off the tracks there as an example of that. Well, no. The line that led through Weedon was known as the Weedon Curves, and it did feature, unsurprisingly, curves. But were they dangerous or excessive? Not really. They were easily negotiable at the speed this express was travelling at. But the curves, well, they probably would be a moot point at this stage of the investigation because the fact is that after the line passes through Whedon Station, it enters a long straight section of track through Stowehill Hill Tunnel. And it was along this straight section, not on a curve, where, well, where it appeared the entire train left the tracks and ended up strewn across the embankments. So for now, let's cross curves off as a possibility. With that option off the list, let's look at another contender, switches and crossings. At many places we've visited together, faulty or poorly maintained points have contributed to horrific accidents. Potter's Bar and Grey Rig are two, well, two prime examples. But was this a factor here? No, no points to be seen in the area of the accident. Let's move on to the next possibility. Speed. We know that curves weren't found at the point where all the train left the track, but could the train have been travelling at an unsafe speed and creating some instability which bounced it off the track? Well, we know the train was travelling at something akin to 60 65 hour at this point, and, well, the Princess Royal class, they could easily and safely haul trains at much higher speeds than this, where the circumstances and the track topography all allowed. So that probably didn't provide us a reason either. So let's look at another incident where a catastrophic derailment took place. Hatfield. At Hatfield, a broken rail, led to a high-speed passenger train derailing and killing many passengers. Was there any similarity to this incident, which took place nearly 50 years earlier? Had damaged or broken rails led to this tragedy? Investigators examined the wreckage and the tracks which lay below it, They found immense amounts of damage there, however large amounts of it was due to the derailment and the forces it exerted against the track. But examination of the track did provide answers to several questions. The chairs, the brackets which held the rails in place here, well they were smashed. And the smashed chairs were present in the track directly underneath the wreckage and the approaching section. The damage to these chairs meant that the tracks were unable to be held in the correct gauge apart from each other and it was this rapid spreading of the tracks which in turn meant it was impossible for the locomotive and the rest of the train to remain on those tracks the soft clay at the foot of the embankment then acted as a type of sand trap rapidly bringing the loco to a halt and piling up the carriages behind it so now we know that the chairs were smashed and that was half the battle what we had to find out now was what smashed them. The most likely cause of this, as we've seen in other locations where trains have derailed, was that the wheels of the train were running derailed, smashing the chairs and freeing the rails, allowing them to spread. And we know from the accounts of the footplate crew that seconds before the train flew down the embankment, something definitely seemed amiss with the lead bogey, and dust and sparks could be seen coming from there. So it follows that this was probably the culprit... The smashed chairs were the result of the derailed lead bogey, and this is what took the express off the tracks. But that, of course, leads us to another question. The derailed lead bogie might have smashed the chairs, freed the rails, and derailed the entire train, but what had caused the leading bogey to derail on a straight and unbroken section of line? So I must start this section off by apologising. I've intentionally misled you, slightly, when I say that the bogey derailed on a straight and unbroken section of line. When examiners, sorry, when investigators examined the track, they followed the damage back along the line, and while the chairs were smashed, and the rails severely damaged at the point of the derailment, and for a couple hundred or two hundred yards further back along the track. This wasn't where the damage actually ended. For 1,400 yards further back along the track, there were other pieces of damage found. The elastic spikes which held this section of track in place were damaged, but not to a degree which limited their functional strength. And additionally, and perhaps even more telling, there was a groove in the sleepers, which indicated that a wheel had been running in the gap between the two rails. For 1,400 yards. One of the rails in this section was also knocked out of alignment by varying amounts, up to 7 inches at worst in the section before the tunnel. And finally, at the very end of this long, long section of line was another telling mark, a 37 foot long mark on top of one of the rails. This mark showed perfectly the point that the flange of one of the leading right hand wheels crossed over the top of the rail and dropped into derailment. The crew wasn't aware that this had taken place, and didn't realise at any point, until the derailment began proper, that one of their wheelsets had derailed. This might seem incredulous though, with all that rocking and rolling and noise and task and everything needing to be focused on and that was going on on the footplate of a mainline loco, it actually wasn't unusual for the derailment of a single wheelset, particularly one at the very very front, so far away from the cab, to go unnoticed by the driver or fireman. There was a lurch however that was felt by others on board but none of the passengers or crew could necessarily know what was being threatened by the motion and indeed the train then ran on without any notable incident for most of a mile. The mark which showed the first point of derailment, this is where I've slightly misled you, this wasn't quite on that straight section of track, it was all the way back in the transition out of the final curve leaving Whedon it means that the likelihood actually was that the derailment had something to do with the train travelling around this corner after all but the next thing that needed to be figured out was what had actually derailed the bogie Unpicking what actually happened to that lead bogey was probably not the easiest job in the world, because before anything took place in terms of examination, that loco needed to be excavated out from the clay which had arrested its momentum. The only wheels which bore markings to correspond with the continuous damage, as we've described earlier, were actually the leading wheels of the bogey. On the right-hand wheel, there was a network of light indentations all around the circumference, which matched up with what you'd expect from wheels running over the spikes. The engine was lifted and taken to, by rail to crew where more in-depth examinations could take place. It was when this was done, and the bogey itself was examined in minute detail, that answers began to become apparent. All of the tyres and flanges, including those on the leading bogey wheels, which were first derailed, had good profiles. There was no excessive side play between the axles and the boxes, and wear at the bogey central pivot was slight. The two side control coil springs with a 4-5 to tonne centering force, well, they were intact and they were properly fitted. And they were tested to a deflection load test with a satisfactory result, so it actually all sounded pretty good and healthy, and not really something that could be the cause of a derailment. But it was found, however that both of the leading axle boxes of the bogey were much too tight in the in the horns that they were mounted in. Now, the rear ones were a slack fit with plenty of play, which is what you want. But the axle boxes which held the axles of the bogey in place, they were held in a horn gap on the bogey itself. And like I said, that's supposed to have a reasonable amount of play to allow for the movement of the locomotive in service when it moves in relation to the track. The rear ones had the play, but the two leading boxes, well, they were wedged in tight. In fact, the axle boxes were actually 17 and thirteen thousandths of an inch larger than the space they were supposed to be fitted into. Investigators were satisfied that this lack of freedom is the factor which triggered the initial derailment of the leading bogies, which, in turn nearly a mile and a tunnel later, turned into catastrophic derailment. It's clear that they also needed to understand just how the incorrect fitting of the part got there, but they didn't need to look too far. Pouring over the maintenance records of the princess showed that she had recently undergone some maintenance, specifically the changing over of the leading and trailing axles of the bogey. This process required the axle boxes to be removed from the horns and swapped and rotated to be placed in the other brackets. If you picture with your car, that you might swap the wheels around to to get the tyres all wearing evenly and avoid having to buy new ones so quickly. That is exactly, literally exactly, what the railway did with bogies in this situation. They would take the axle boxes out of the horns, rotate the axles, and swap them front to rear, rear to front. But the reason that this work, and in turn the horns, drew so much attention was because this was the Princess Arthur of Connaught's first journey since that work had been carried out. And it transpired that the fitter that had carried out the work had been less than conscientious, or had simply made a mistake. Fitter W. Taylor mismanaged the task of changing over the two axles, which should have been well within the capacity of a skilled man with his long experience on the job. His mistake would probably have been avoided if he'd at first ascertained that there was a considerable difference between the axle box's dimensions, front to rear, and he told investigators that on previous occasions he had found this problem and dealt with it. Just not... This occasion. Additionally, he also seems to have appreciated that he should consult the supervisor if he found any of the axle boxes would have been unduly tight or indeed too slack in their new positions. And well, he had plenty of time to do the work, but it was difficult for the Lieutenant Colonel to understand why he didn't do either of these things. Whatever the answer, the one, one thing is abundantly clear. The freedom of those leading wheels to rise and fall under the action of the springs and in turn retain their loading on the rail as they followed the ordinary rise and fall of the track was severely restricted by the fact the axle boxes were such a tight fit. And actually, that fit would have been made even tighter when the metal expanded under the ordinary heat generated by running an express passenger train. It... (sighs) well, it's important to sort of wonder at this point is how many times had this disaster been narrowly avoided on the journey up to this point? Could it have happened on the outskirts of Liverpool? Could it have happened at 75 mile an hour outside of rugby, for example, how close had disaster come already before it actually took place? Understanding the issue with the, the, the axle boxes and the horns and how that triggered the derailment of the bogey and how the bogey triggered the derailment of the entire train, there is one last question we need to answer to sort of complete the puzzle. And it is, if the train successfully ran derailed for 1,500 yards without drastically derailing, what suddenly changed and just threw the train off the line? To answer that one, we need to take a closer look at the track itself. The Permanent Way. The rails, sleepers and fittings. To the untrained eye, it just looks like tracks. But do not be deceived. Not all rail is created equal. The material on the last 710 yards of the curve leading into the straight section, the section up to the tunnel itself, that was made of flat bottomed rails. Very heavy, very dense. 131 pounds per yard. And in the tunnel, a 109 pound flat bottomed rail was fitted. This flat bottom rail was fastened in place by the elastic spikes we talked about earlier. It's the standard. Of choice, really, all over the world now for, for rail, flat bottomed rail. And if you see tracks, it's more than likely this design or a slight variation of it. If you can picture it, it's got a, a a big running head on the top, a sort of thinner section in the middle, and then a wide T sort of shaped base at the bottom, the flat bottom that sits on the sleepers and fittings then connect the two. But, It was not the only type of track that you would find in 1951. And really, what I would say is it's still not the only type of track you'd find now. But generally, most of it is flat-bottomed rail. But in 1951 specifically, there was one other type of track that was very prominently used. And the existence of it is what turned this tale from damage to disaster. And it's called Bullhead Rail. It's clear throughout the straight and the tunnel that only one set of rails of wheels had derailed and small amounts of damage were being caused to the track as this wheel bounced across and impacted the, the spikes. But 224 yards past the exit of the tunnel, the track under the train changed from flat bottom to bullhead. Bullhead Rail has that same large sort of rounded off railhead where the wheels of the train run, but instead of a flat base that just sits on the sleeper or a mounting plate, it had a bulbous base as well, almost like a smaller sized railhead. This profile means in order to mount it to the sleepers, you actually need to mount it in a bracket, a big heavy bracket known as a chair. And that's what increased the severity of the accident at Weedon by orders of magnitude. When the derailed bogey reached the bullhead rail, instead of just glancing over the top of the spikes, it began smashing the chairs to pieces. From the commencement of the bullhead track, the rails were in place in the broken chairs for approximately 122 yards, but at that point it appeared that the engine was completely derailed by the widening of the gauge, the smashed chairs allowing the tracks to just spread and the train then just continued to break up the track before it itself was diverted down the 12-foot embankment to the left. All it took to turn people's worlds upside down and to turn this relatively stable derailment into a pile of wreckage was the transition from one rail type to another The main conclusion of the investigation into Whedon was that the maintenance work at some depots just required a higher standard, or at the very least greater supervision. And indeed the message was received loud and clear. As soon as the tight fit was discovered, the divisional motive power superintendents in the London Midland region were informed of all the circumstances, and orders were issued then that no locomotive axles should be changed around without their personal authority pending a further review of policy and procedure. It is accidents like this which lead to the rigorous and high standards on the depots that we see today. This is the reason why precise tools are used to provide precise measurements, and why work is routinely double and triple checked. Wheeden was a disaster, like so many of them, which simply just did not need to happen. There was a process in place. It wasn't followed or it wasn't followed stringently enough. The newsreels at the time were filled with aerial footage of the disaster, something that seems, well, so regular and expected nowadays, but actually it wasn't something that I would expect to have seen from 70 years ago, and it was, I wouldn't say a pleasant surprise, but it was a surprise, and it really, really helped to set the scene in your mind, and you can can find that newsreel on YouTube, and I would genuinely recommend going and have a look. It's It seems out of time, almost, but not in the way you normally see that. Normally you see something very old in in modern, but this footage from from a plane circling the disaster site in glorious black and white flickering, it, it really does help to set the scene in your mind as you think about this particular accident. The scene of the crash at Whedon is now just another unnamed and unnoticed section of line, surrounded by greenery and scenery. Not three weeks ago, I was actually on a train, which whipped through this section twice in two days. Did I notice it? No, I didn't. And I have a thing about train crashes. But the fact is so many sections of the network have such a rich and dark history. And it just goes to show how close you might be to the scene of... well a terrible disaster without even noticing. Thank you once again for tuning into episode 26. And once again, please like, share, review, come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook, get yourself over to signalsdanger.com and you know what, check out the support or the shop pages. But you know the drill by now. Until the next episode, travel safe.